Amen. This is the word of God. May God write it on our hearts that we may not sin against him. Thank you. Amen. Those of you who pray for me while I preach, you can pray I don't weep during this sermon. I've been working on this sermon in my own heart for about two years. What is saving faith? Hebrews 11.1 1 answers the question. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Well, as one theologian has said, faith is not, quote, a holy hoping for the best. It's not a call to believe in things when common sense tells you not to. Faith is not a mindless stab in the dark. It is not a leap into apparent nothingness, end quote. Saving faith is for sinners only. We are sinners only. Hear me. Good works that we do. Bad works that we do. No works. Faith is God's work. Faith is God's work. And when wrought on the heart by God, it is evident. As, as clear as the writing of the finger of God upon the stone tablets given to Moses in the Old Covenant, those who have faith in Jesus Christ alone have been engraved with the same saving finger of God written into Jesus' wounds. This is the weight of where we are heading about faith in this sermon. There are always and only two types of people in any room like this right now, this morning, when it comes to standing and preaching and examining ourselves before the word of God. There are those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal savior, and then there are those who have not believed. I would add, despite what they think they know about their belief, because sometimes this is the deception, especially around us, it's common. There are those who believe, and then there are those who do not the last group, sometimes irrespective of knowledge, I, I mean that like this. I, you know, I can know Joe Biden. I can know of him. I can know his origin story, his political career, his vice presidency, his presidency. I can know where he currently resides. I could go to the White House this morning. What could I do? I could stand with confidence there and say, there is that uh, Joe Biden, the president of the United States, and I know him. But that knowledge doesn't get me to the breakfast table with him. And if I tried, I'd probably get tased, right? Or severely hurt. But if Joe Biden looks out of the Oval Office and he says, that's Wesley Burke, I know him. Bring him to me. Well, then I have, a, I have time with him now. Do you believe in God? It's rhetorical. Does God the Father know you? Does he call you his own? Are you sure of this? You can answer yes to all of these questions this morning if you pay attention to the Bible text that we're studying today. You can know them. Our text you just heard is Romans 5, 1 through 11. This is a rare moment at RBC that uh, we are preaching a standalone sermon after just finishing an entire series in the book of Acts Together, our brother will come and stand uh, next week, Ricardo, and preach from 1 Peter 3, and then we'll begin a new study in the book of Obadiah together. 
But this is a, this is a unique week for us to, to just take this next couple of weeks and, and see maybe topically a couple of things from the scriptures. But in one sense, we're kind of continuing the book of Acts, if you think about it. So Paul, who wrote Romans, the Apostle Paul, is the author of this book. And we just left him in Rome, actually, in Acts 28. He was just in Rome, the city, Italy, during his time. And he wrote this book we're studying this morning, Romans, a couple of years prior to arriving at Rome. And like we saw, he did that last week in our time together. Well, this letter going before him to the church of Rome, it is many things, many things. Let me tell you just a few of them. This book is precious with piety. (laughs) It really is. This book is trustworthy with theology. You could trust the theology here. This book is steeped in sovereignty, okay? It, It banks on God being God. This book is dripping with devotion. You read the book of Romans, it is dripping with devotion. It will help you devotionally all the time. What we'll focus on in this passage is it's helpful for the hopeful. It is helpful for those who want to grow in hope, in hope. Prior to what we will cover today, the Apostle Paul has already covered four main ideas presented to us in the first four chapters. Hear me, this is the end of my introduction. This is the context, so you need to pay attention. You may not think that, but you do need to think that when you study your Bible. The context is essential when you read a passage of Scripture. That's why we go through books of the Bible here at our church. We can't do that this morning, but we can quickly talk about chapters 1 through 4 and their main ideas. Let's do that together. You can flip back and see the headings that may help you in your Bible. But chapter one of Romans, the main idea is this, the power of God to save is the gospel message of Jesus Christ. You can say amen, because that's, that's good, right? Uh, we must not be ashamed of that message that Jesus saves. We must believe it by faith, for God is a just judge. He is a just judge, and it is our only hope, the gospel. Now, chapter one, a little bit more here, Paul is eager to go and preach this gospel to the Romans. You need to not forget throughout the sermon today and throughout the book of Romans as you study it that, that, that this letter is for the saved. It's for the church at Rome, the elect of God, the children of God, okay? We preach content this way because we are equipping the church in this hour to do the work of the ministry among those who don't believe. Paul's writing this to say in chapter one, I'm going to show up and preach to you children of God so you'll go and, and be missional. That's what we're doing here as well. So if you're a guest here among us and you don't believe in Christ, you're not a Christian, you're going to maybe be confused that I'm preaching at you at times as if you already believe these things. That's not offensive. This hour is for equipping the saints to do the work. But I pray if you're here and don't believe in Christ, you will look upon what we're talking about with great interest. If you will, God will save you. Chapter two. The main idea, God's judgment shows no partiality. Chapter two is about God's judgment. It showed no partiality. And Paul said that that God's law is on every single individual's heart and that everyone who who would uh, fail to keep it, they're condemned. Whether they are a Jew who received that law explicitly or a Gentile that implicitly by God's putting it on their heart has denied it. Chapter three's main idea, if that wasn't bad, it gets worse. Chapter three is it gets worse before it gets better because all have sinned. Maybe the, the, the phrase that always stuck out to me the most in reading plans when I read through Romans is 
lost individuals, when we don't have saving faith, our throats are like an open grave. Oh, you know, you open your mouth and death comes out of it. That's what it smells like. Your life reeks of it and it's worthy of God's judgment. He's right and holy to judge and send that kind of rebellion into hell, right? That's Romans 3. However, it's not all of Romans 3 because with that kind of level of, of, of understanding about our depravity, Paul can't help but weave in there right at the end of that chapter something that sets up uh, 4 because he says God manifested his righteousness in Christ and those who believe in Christ, God has passed over those sins, which is powerful. So what does he tell them to do in 3? Boast in faith, boast in faith. Chapter four, right before ours now. This is the main idea, guys, that sets up our text today. So get this context, all right? Paul says that to the, the Romans, the, that Father Abraham, which was the original example of saving faith in redemptive history. So the Jews knew Abraham to be having received God's eternal promises, okay? Paul says Abraham was saved by faith, not works. And that gives us hope. Paul concludes there in four, to be saved by the same faith. Okay, so we've answered the question of what is the therefore, therefore in your passage. Look at our text now. Romans 5, 1 starts with therefore. And so we had to do what I just did. It helps us to see. Therefore, if that's the case, if this is one through four, our text today, what is it going to teach us? I think two clear points. If you're taking notes, two points today. Point number one. Christ died for sinners only. Christ died for sinners only. I'll make sense of that, hopefully, from the text here, but it'll be verses 6 through 11, actually. Strangely, I know, but we're going to study this passage backwards. I think it will help us. Okay, so Christ died for sinners only. Point two, sinners only may live for Christ. That's verses 1 through 5. They kind of fit together. Christ died for sinners only, and sinners only may live for Christ. Let's talk about Christ's death for sinners. Let me grab my water. Sorry about this. Okay. Verses 6 through 11 of our passage. It speaks directly to a very scandalous reality that we've been singing about in this room. And I use the word scandalous intentionally. No one is too sinful or believing themselves to be too good for God not to redeem them through the death and the resurrection of Christ. No one can outsin the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Notice the word choices. We're looking at 6 through 11 in this first point here. Notice the word choices to describe you and me this morning. Weak and ungodly. Weak and ungodly. Notice in that Christ died for us at the right time. At the right time was not when you or me got our acts together, cleaned up our lives, started fitting more of God into our schedule to appease our guilt so that we could make ourselves presentable to him? No. At the right time, Christ choosing to die for the ungodly happened. When you were ungodly and when you were weak. This is essential. If he died for you, then this is true. You cannot outsend the grace of God. 
Again, I will say, no one is too sinful for God to redeem them through the death of Christ. Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. What's Paul doing here? Well, remember Jesus, who is the background often for these New Testament letters. Jesus said, those who are well, they have no need of a physician, right? He said, but those who are sick, okay, that's who needs the physician. Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, why do I tell you that before explaining verse seven here? I think we need to quickly establish the fact that Jesus said this because there were those then, and there are people now who actually think the opposite that they are good enough to save themselves, that they are good enough or maybe there is some goodness enough in them to reverse the effects of their fallen nature and to free themselves from the bondage of their sin. That is not true. Romans 3 is in view here. None are righteous, no, not one. Paul knows that and this, this verse is simply raised in a hypothetical way and he's doing it to really hammer down the fact that even in our righteous attempts, even in our best attempts to be good, it's still not enough. Do you feel it in the way he explains this, right? We're saying in these points, guys, we're saying what? You know, no, no one is too sinful or too good in their own eyes to not be redeemed by the death of Christ, right? And the resurrection of Christ. Paul's saying, look, sometimes we don't think that. Verse seven, what, what is he getting at? I mean, God, Christ has died for the ungodly, and do we understand that? We may actually arrogantly think we do. Maybe someone would die, dare even to die for a good person. Surely we would do the right thing. Paul's kind of asking you to think. Perhaps in a moment of clarity, you would die for a good person if it meant they get to keep doing what they're doing good, and, and we have a view of ourselves like that. But the Bible before this in the book of Romans, and we're about to see the contrast with this in verse 8, right here in our text, would absolutely disagree. The Bible concludes, a pound of flesh is in every good thing you do before you know Christ. And afterwards, that flesh still wants to put a pound of the good that you do. So do not put your trust in the good that you do. Put your trust in the God who saves you despite your misconception. So Paul's saying here, are you today too weak and ungodly of a sinner for Christ to save you? I'm asking you because I think you ask you that. Maybe you don't mean to. Maybe it lives in the recesses of doubt in your mind. But it will bust its way forward often, won't it? And you will begin to think, I'm, I've done too much. I've sinned too much. I'm too weak. I'm too broken. I'm too ungodly. This cannot be true of me. Read the Bible, my friend. Hear it today. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Are you aware that even your good deeds, apart from Christ, leave you a ruined sinner still? If you are prideful today, assuming your good deeds are actually contributing to God's favor, I do want you to let this text humble you. Ask yourselves, really, is a judge of all the earth to judge you according to how good you've done or who he is? People think there's a scale. They think it somehow tips in their favor with good works. 
It's antithetical to the gospel. The weight of one sin outweighs every good deed on earth when you deal with the holy God. So be humbled. But some of you in your humility, though, need to hear, if I've given up self-righteousness like that and I'm just trying to fight to not be a legalist, does God still love me? Verse 8. You would scarcely die for a good. You are weak and ungodly. But God, God shows his love for us in that while we were still active, present, participle there, still in the moment, presently a sinner, Christ died for us. This verse uses the word shows. It's very important. It uses it in an important fashion. God the Father, the holy creator, the sustainer of all of life, makes a choice to demonstrate something. That's what this implies. Do you see the wonderful news in this? That Christ died for sinners. It's simple, right? But listen, as God exists in his own self-existence, God is perfectly unified Within himself, God is in need of nothing. It is in community with Christ the Son through God the Holy Spirit that God the Father is himself a perfect, perfect example of love for us. To see and behold, this has been shown to us. This is our God, perfect in holiness with zero needs. Think of it like this. If God needed you, he would fail to be God. All by itself, the doctrine of our triune God, who he is, is enough for all of us as sinners to understand that he is love. I know there's argument against it. What about when he judges? If you would study it carefully and close enough and reveal, see God revealed in the word, even, and one day, we just sang about it, right? All creatures of our God and king will one day bow to this understanding. So this is the future that everybody's going to understand. But even now, if you would study God and know his attributes as presented, everything you think him to be hateful for, you would see as an extension of his love. Because holy love, it, 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 it requires a pureness. And that adds to, doesn't take away from who he is. So all on his own, that's the thing. But then God just said, I'm going to show it. <laughs> he demonstrates his love for us. That when we were weak, unholy, self-righteous, sexually immoral, angry, bitter, depressed, hurting ourselves, hurting others, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, but I'm so ashamed. Well, good. Give him your shame. Give him your shame. Oh, but I'm so dirty. That list you just said, it doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of the pits of my mind. Well, you know what? Give him your dirt. Oh, I'm so broken. I'm so ruined. I'm shattered glass on the floor, and, and I'm hiding it. Give him all the pieces. He loves to put them back together. <laughs> Trust. Oh, but my inconsistency, my apathy, my waning love, my cold heart, my flagrant sin. Oh God, my hostile attitude. You don't know how bad it is, how wretched I am. Stop it, soul. Stop it, mind. Stop it, body. You don't belong to you anymore. God demonstrated his love. You're in good company, sinner, when you're in Christ's presence. This is Paul's main point. Do you believe that? 
What we are like that I just illustrated through prose, poetry, whatever you want to call that, we are assuming we understand the wrath and severity of God when we think that way, but we don't. Okay? Thinking, if you are in Christ and you think and believe the lies that I just articulated artistically, you are in that condemnation, presuming and assuming you understand God's severity against your sin. This is a grave mistake in understanding justification. The problem is our assumption becomes more about us as sinners than about Christ as having actually died and rose. That is not actual faith in Christ. Again, think about the first point of the sermon here in its title. I think what I tried to convey, which is earnest, I'm not trying to shame you, I'm with you in this. I think the earnest evaluation in a low moment is those things. But it is a presumption on, that we understand God's severity. So the phrase, Christ died for sinners only, kind of sounds like this. Oh, Christ died, I know, I know. Oh yeah, I know Christ died, I know, I know. For sinners only. And all of our boldness, all of our understanding is wrapped up in the last part rather than the first part that Christ died. You see, that's not actual faith in Christ, not saving faith. It is a proportionally disturbed notion to think that way, proportionally disturbing. This is what goes on in the heart of, an indwell, of, of a Christian even who holds on to indwelling sin. A lack of saving faith in us in that moment is a proportionally disturbed understanding. I love how one theologian says it. He says this, quote, your faith instinctively strengthens in direct proportion to the expansion of the object of your faith. You expand your understanding of the object of your faith, and guess what? Faith itself will obediently follow. The object of your faith, if indeed you are a Christian, is Jesus Christ and all his promises, end quote. This is why we must go on to verses 9 through 11, I think, to understand fully justification by faith. Because prior to faith, something happened to Christ on behalf of you, a sinner. A justifying moment happened. Look at verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Ask yourself this question this morning. When was his blood spilt? At the right time. We've already learned that in this text. At the right time, the gospels even show Christ came, Christ suffered, Christ died. That is an act of definite atonement. It is the real severity of God's wrath being displayed, not the false severity of God's wrath that me and you come victim to when we fail to see Christ died for sinners for what it is. The real display of God's severity and anger and judgment of sin doesn't fall on you and me in the hour of weak faith. It fell on Christ in the hour of atonement. And Paul is stressing, since therefore you know these things, be justified by his blood. When was it spilled? On Calvary. You must look back. You must look forward. Look at the rest of verse 9. Much more shall, much more shall, that's future. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Do you see that? That is a future tense, beloved. Christ shed his blood in time. Your time, time past, right? And you shall be saved fully in time, a moment in the future, from the wrath of God permanently. 
Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Do you hear this? This is basically repeating verse 9. Again, you think yourself unsavable. The Bible agrees with your discernment in that, right? And it makes it clearer for you. It's worse than you know. Think of this. Condemnation shows up to the believing child of God and preaches a false gospel. And it says, you're bad. And you say, I am bad. And, it, and, then, it, and, then, it's, and then somehow it switches to, and I completely understand how bad I am. So let me make my own atonement. In this moment now, let me make my own atonement because it will trap me. And it appears in various vices, some more carnal than others. But the device, the issue we hate about ourselves this is the root, often, of the lie of not believing that we're justified. Paul's just like, again in verse 10, you were an enemy. You think it's bad? It's worse. You were an enemy of the holy God of the universe. Okay? This is Thanos. He snaps his fingers and it's all over. And that's not a jokey Hollywood type. That's for real. But he doesn't operate like that. The way he operates is that eternal life can be ours. How? Because this God that we're enemies with is reconciling by the death of his son. Again, it's a repeating thing, right? Verse 9, it was, hey, look, by his blood. Verse 10, by the death of his son. We're thinking back to the moment. We get our eyes off of the severity of our own situation and we more greatly uphold a reverence for the severity of Jesus, hanging like a criminal, a piece of meat on a tree cursed on our behalf. That's the gravitas of verse 10 again, saying, look back, beloved, by faith. And, and look, it is a repetition because look, the same phrase in verse 10. It has now that we're reconciled in the middle of it. But look, the death of his son, much more, skip that phrase, much more shall. You see that? Verse 10, much more shall. Again, we be saved, future tense, by his life. This is the beginning of being justified by faith. The beginning of being justified by faith is this. God is the justifier of faith because of his willingness to be the slayer of his own son for you in, in the past, in this moment, so that he could be the justifier and the sanctifier and the glorifier of you because of his son in that future moment. And you live in the space between. And what helps you? Well, we've said in our statement that you... Uh, that you recited together beautifully, we, we said this, justification is not uh, given because of any works of righteousness we have done, but only through faith in the Redeemer's blood. By virtue of this faith, his perfect righteousness is freely imputed to us by God. That statement assumes that the Jesus who died and the Jesus that will absolutely be Lord of all and you will join him, it shall be, rose from the grave in the intermediate, and right now we long to be with him, and we will. We will. We will be with him. Christ died for sinners only, our first truth. Now we're ready to go backwards. First, though, let's look at verse 11. I know we didn't talk about it, but the, the last verse is a perfect transition, I think, back to the beginning, uh, which we admit is the conclusion of the stanza here. So more than that, all right, it's like there's more? With Romans, there's always more, y'all. More than that, though, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. 
Now that's actually picking up and concluding verses one through five, which is the next point here. Okay? So because you're asking, if you hear verse 11, okay, through him, we now have received reconciliation and we're rejoicing in him, we're rejoicing. I mean, we've been, we've been sorrowful about the fact that we're sinners, Christ died for us, we rejoice in that, but now there's a rejoicing to be had in this life. To which I would say, look, point one, if Christ died for sinners only, point two, sinners only may live for Christ, may live for Christ. Let's look at that together. Verse one, and then really verse 1a, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, brothers and sisters, remember, we are justified by faith, not by our good works. Our faith is in the hope of our first point. Our faith is in the object, the rock of Christ, Christ who died for us. But what does this mean for sinners like you and me? I love how A.H. Strong teaches this. The analogy here is helpful, I think, um, of a locomotive and train cars. You know, a locomotive, big engine that runs, and then the train cars where we're trying to, you know, the whole, the whole of, a, of, a, of the why we have trains, what we need to do. And what brings them together is a coupling, right? Listen to what he says. The coupling, quote, the coupling joins a train of cars to a locomotive. The coupling has no power in itself. It cannot move a single car an inch. All the power is in the locomotive. But the coupling is the link by which the power of the locomotive is transmitted to the cars. Now of faith. Faith has no power in itself. It is not a ground of salvation. It is not a good work. It is merely that by which all the goodness and grace and glory of Christ comes to the sinner. This is why we say right now, sinners only may live for Christ. After we have been justified by faith, indwelling sin does still remain. But let this analogy be to us of concrete assurance, like we sang about, that uh, to those who believe that from the very start, justification, it is... Gaining access, which is what the, a word used in this text, right? It's gaining access to understanding who God is and then into his mind about what he thinks about you. I'll say it this way. Justification is a legal declaration by God that you're forgiven of all your debt of sin in Christ. All of it. It is a decision made in the mind of God about you when you receive the gift of salvation in Christ by faith. How can this be? The Bible uses a a word in Titus 3 to help us understand God's order of how he makes salvation sensible to me and you. And in Titus 3 and 4, listen to this. It says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, and here it is, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's a beautiful verse. God's mind to regenerate your dead heart, his choice, to change your dead life, to reorient your dead affections that were not for him, that were actually enemy-type thinking against him. His decision to reorient those things is the work of regeneration, and you know it by faith. By faith. Faith becomes the coupling that connects the locomotive of that decision in God to the train of your life. 
And Paul says here, we are that. We are justified. Now look at the rest. Because of that, if that's true, right? If that's true, we've been literally linked to God. These first verses, beloved, are why I said, I think this, past, this chapter is about helping the hopeful. Because what comes after this awesome statement, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, is now a linking to God that is explainable. That's why I want to kind of like, you know, understand if, if, if God has peace, peace now is yours. If God has, if he is grace, right? If grace is, you know, in an essence, kind of what he's about, you are in, standing in it. And if he is a God of hope in his own glory, you can have hope in that and rejoice in your circumstances, okay? Where do I get all that? Look at verses one through three. We are justified by faith. That's an established fact. We possess great benefits in our soul. And verse two and three are explaining that. We have peace. That verse said we have access to grace to stand in this life. And we have joy in hope. And the hope is in the glory of God. Man, do you hear all the good news in this? (laughs) I think we understand these things instantly when we are converted. Really, I think we do. I think... I think when when someone is born again and there's new birth and it's genuine, I think it's a mercy and a kindness of God that you don't question these things. You don't question peace, (laughs) peace from God. We don't question it. We don't question the grace. I deserved none of it. There's no merit, but I have it. You're so gracious, God. And the hope, oh, the hope I have. I think we see this. We're justified by faith and possess these. Now, let me say, these are possessions, not professions. These are facts, not feelings. It is very important to remember. When this text describes you, if you were in Christ, as having peace and having grace and having joyful hope, it is not subjective to how you feel or how I feel. This is important because our faith is weakest when we make it about our own subjective feelings. We don't really feel peace. We don't really feel grace. God, I don't really have hope. I'm so weary. I'm so discouraged, rejected, or I'm carnal. I'm fleshly. I'm acting out against this. Right? Those things, yeah, there's a lot of law against such things. But against the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians, right? Which some of these make the list and love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness. That's gracious and hopeful, right? These things are to be understood as coming to you as a fact, not evaluated through the lens of whether or not you have them or are feeling them in the moment. Again, I think I want to stress this. This is why we should, and I have in the past, love new believers. And I love being around new believers. That's why we pray constantly for God to save lost people around us. New Christians are, as our statement of faith said when we read it, they are immediately brought, quote, into a state of most blessed peace and favor with God and secures, God secures every other blessing that they need for time and eternity. I love being around new believers because you look them in the eye and even when their life's a train wreck, even when they would talk to you and the old man still just is all in their verbiage and their life is still a mess, but you see it. If you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. You see peace, you see grace, right? You, you, see, you see hope. It's electric. 
But what happens about a year later or some years later? What happens when you go bankrupt? When you lose a loved one? When a cancer diagnosis comes? When anxieties and depressions rob you of these benefits? What about when circumstances stump your growth? What about when you're, when you're ashamed of how bored you are of God? What about when dis discipline seems impossible? What about when you have physical and psychological pain? What about when choices frustrate you? How do we rejoice in that? How do we possess those things? Even while we feel the opposite of them all. And maybe even find ourselves in sin because of it. Every new believer usually will testify, if God doesn't take them home in untimely ways, that soon after that, they ran into a wall of difficulty. And if anything seemed certain, it wasn't peace, and it wasn't grace, and it wasn't hope. Every, every believer will experience this. Our little statement at this point, again, is helpful. We are justified by faith. That's an established fact. Therefore, we possess great benefits in our soul. Therefore, our maturity in faith is determined by possessing hope. Let's see this in closing today. I want to walk us through verses 3 through 5 on our way out of our time together. For I think the best ointment for your soul, if you find yourself in that place, is to just sit with the text for a minute. So look, by verse 2, you have your answer as to how sinners can only, sinners only can live for Christ, right? We have that. Look, look again, verse 2. It's through him. We've also obtained access by faith. We stand in the grace and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. There it all is. But sometimes that maybe feels like it's not enough for you. Keep reading. Let me say this before I read verse 3. You know, just like in point 1, when he died for us, we need to see how we can live for him more clearly, right? Paul did that. He was like, look, Christ died for you. And then he kept reminding you of how he did. Back then, future, and how you should live, right? It's the same here. I think it's like, hey, do this, right? This is what you have. Statement of fact. How do you now walk in it? Verse 3. Not only that. <laughs> but wait, there's more, right? Not only that. So not only do you have such amazing benefits, brother, sister in Christ, the peace of God, the grace of God, the ability to rejoice in the glory of God, but check this out. But we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. Did you hear that? We will suffer. We will suffer. And that will be at times by things that are outside of our control. Sometimes it will be other things that are very much in our control because it's our indwelling sin that remains, that remains to be purified and mortified and killed by the spirit that also resides in you. In our suffering, we have joy. Why? It said rejoice in our sufferings. Have joy in suffering. Keep reading with me. A progression is given. Why do we rejoice in our sufferings? Because we know, knowing that suffering produces endurance. That means that we will remain steady under the weight of it. Okay, what does this verse mean? We won't have a breakdown. We won't. We cannot recover from. Right? We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. I'm not in the text. I'm in another text. I appreciate you though with your eyes on the Bible. Some of y'all. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. 
We're struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the, in the body the death of Jesus. <laughs> you need that, right? That atonement. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies to nature, right? We have that. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 10. So Paul's saying, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Great. What does endurance do? Look at this. Verse 4. And endurance produces character. Now, everybody press pause for a second. Let's be honest. If you're a Christian here today, you want godly character. I know you do, because I know I do. You want godly character in your job. Do you not? You want to be marked off as different there for God and his glory and, and mature there. You want godly character in your marriage for those of you married. You want to be a godly husband and a godly wife. You want to care more about the spouse then you care about your own self. You want to see God work. You want mature character. You want that. If you're not you know, wanting those things, it makes no sense. We want godly character in our Bible reading, do we not? We don't want to just read it. We want to study it, know it, feel it, love it. We're hoping endurance is producing character in us. We want to love God's word more. We want more godly character in our witnessing. We want people that want to stump us with the gospel, you know, gospel deniers. We want to be able to just in love, throw a rock in their shoe and say, would you consider Jesus? And just not for our own namesake, but for him. We want godly character in our evangelism. We want to pray more. We want success in church planning. We want, we want some good work for us to walk in, right? Maybe that's where the progression ends. Some of us think the progression ends in verse four. We think that when it comes to our growth and faith and saving faith, we rejoice in our sufferings. We know they produce endurance. We can make it through the hard times. And that endurance is producing character. And boy, that's what we needed. We needed that stamp of our good work approval, to be honest. And we think we've arrived. Saving faith is complete. Now, if we're honest, we would expect character to produce those good works, right? We would expect the text to produce next for us if we've got godly character, that we are reading our Bible more, that we are sharing the gospel more, we are praying more, we're finally healthy, we take care of our spouses, we love our children, we have success in our jobs, and we are good workers for Christ. Christian maturity has ended, right? Wrong. Look at the text. Hope. Man, I missed this for so long. <laughs> Hope. Endurance produces character. Read it again. Rejoice in your suffering. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. 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 Hope, hope, hope. For the Christian, your maturity is actually not growing in works. Your maturity is growing in hope. Because hope does not put you to shame. We got to get this. If you pursue God with the hidden desire to do something for him or something great for him, to honor him, to please him, to produce good works for him. And that is your sole motive down at its root. Performance for him is your idol and he's not. And you should be ashamed of that because it's not the gospel. The gospel is hope. You didn't have it and by faith you got it. That's where your character is seen. When God the character shows up, you got a lot of hope. God has chosen how to relate to us and he's done it based on hope, not works. What a great choice. Thank you, God. <laughs> Help us to start getting it right all the time because we get it so wrong. I mean, Paul wants to stop here. It's a full stop. Hope produces nothing in this passage. Hope just gets explained. 
Man, I needed to hear this so often. Hope does not put us to shame. But God, I'm so ashamed. Well, hope doesn't put you to shame. So evaluate yourself in light of the atonement, in light of the gospel. More commentary. Because, why? Why is this true? Because God's love has been poured, guys. This is an overflowing. This is ridiculous. It has overflowed into your hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. These are certainties. Notice hope doesn't produce anything in the text. It doesn't demand works. It demands grace. <laughs> Look, if you say I'm, I'm so ashamed to God, then you're not hoping because God has already taken your shame. If you be justified in Christ and, and you say, God, I, I'm, I'm so lazy, and that, 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 that's what you're calling your, your saving faith, hear me, you, you need to think better because God's already taken your laziness and apathy. Whatever it is that you would say, you think, you think God gets this sin and you think he puts it in front of your face and it's going to stay there and until holiness somehow trumps it, you're not enough, you don't have enough saving faith, whatever that is, and you put it in the face of God, God took it from you and put it in Christ's palm and he drove a stake through it. And he said, get your eyes on hope. Because that same hole-driven hand was touched by doubting Thomas and it was held in the side of the bosom of Jesus that you will one day see and be with forever. Man, that thing is going to be, it's scarred for you because by his wounds you're healed. You have hope. That is the beginning of understanding your justification by faith. This is the message of Romans 5, 1 through 11. Don't be terrified of indwelling sin when it appears. Be hopeful that Christ died for sinners only and sinners only may live for Christ. May God write these truths on our hearts so that we stop sinning against him. Let's pray. God, thank you for hope. Thank you for the assurance of salvation that comes because of the blessed state of justification. Oh Lord, some of us confess today that we've lost our first love often. Our love grows cold. We forget what it was like but this truth is truth. <laughs> Father, we submit to it. If anybody is here and, and they've been in the pit of despair, use this, the gospel, the truth of the word, to send it from your holy hill to their heart. Raise them up above their sadness, God. Empower them to have faith and to have hope, to know that they stand with access to your grace. Father, if any are high and mighty and self-righteous and in need of humbling, Oh, Lord, let them walk for a moment in this next song with the Jesus who, who lived on their behalf, died on, on their behalf, rose again, and in all humility still says that they can have hope too. We've received the ministry of reconciliation, Christ. Thank you. Help us to be reconciled again to you and then to one another. And then, to, Lord, help us to go as ministers of reconciliation to this world that's dying. All the while, God, we know that we cannot do this perfectly. We absolutely are dependent on you. So increase the vision we have of you, the understanding biblically we have, God, of you. Lord, may we see that when we get the sails of faith up and studying of who you are, you fill it with the hope of promise and we can really make it through any storm. We need such help, God. Thank you for being the coupling and the locomotive and the author of all of the train of our life. Oh, Lord, we're so eager to see you face to face. Until then, God, Make us hungry and thirsty for righteousness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.